Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. According to a report just released by Freedom House, a watchdog group that advocates for democracy, political rights and civil liberties became weaker in 68 countries. The report also says that the U.S. freedom score has declined by eight points over the past eight years. At the same time, we know that voters are unhappy. We're told that democracy is collapsing, that fascism is on the rise. We hear particularly from the left about the need for more direct democracy, for greater citizen participation, for more direct referendum and initiatives. One group on this program recently called for citizen assemblies that supplant representative government. Yet it seems that the more of this do-it-yourself politics we have, the more anger there is, the more divided we are. What if we're going in the wrong direction? What if the answer to democracy's seeming ills is not more democracy, but more appreciation of the system of parties and representative government that our founders passed down to us. It seems today a very contrarian view, and perhaps that's why it's correct. It's put forth by my guest, Yale professor Ian Shapiro, in his new book, Responsible Parties, Saving Democracy from Itself. Ian Shapiro is the Sterling Professor of Political Science and Director of the Macmillan Center at Yale University, and it is my pleasure to welcome Professor Ian Shapiro here to talk about Responsible Parties, Saving Democracy from Itself. Ian, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me on. It's great to have you here. I want to talk in a general sense first about this idea that that the solution to so many of the problems of democracy today might not be more an extended democracy, but getting back to the kind of representative republic that our founders envisioned. Um, so we we believe that um, parties are essential to effective democratic governance. The original founders didn't take that view, but um, both Madison and Jefferson quickly changed their mind when they actually started to govern and, of course, created the first political parties in America. And um, what we argue in our book, Responsible Parties, Saving Democracy from Itself, is that we have in, in over the last century, but particularly since the 1960s, engaged in reform after reform after reform that has made it impossible for them for failing to govern. And so, as you said in your, in your very accurate introduction, um, we have essentially, by giving voters more and more direct control over um, p- individual decisions, parties, and leaders, um, we we have made a world in which we are bound to be disappointed, and then we continue to make additional changes that make the situation even worse. So we're trying to change the conversation and explain why you actually need cohesive parties that function more like teams if you're going to get effective government. One of the things that we have found that you point out is that the more popular democracy we have, that it has paradoxically eroded trust in government. And this has been true here and around yep. the world. Yep, it's, that's true. It's not just in the U.S. It plays out differently in different systems. In our system, we've had a particularly corrosive effect as a result of primaries. Very little secret about primaries is that there's very low turnout in primaries. And the people who turn out tend to be on the extremes of the parties, people who are activists. And so you can get a situation like, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez elected in New York uh, on an 11% turnout, or Jim Jordan elected in Ohio, he's a Freedom Caucus guy at the far right of the Republican Party, 
um, elected on a 15% turnout, or indeed Donald Trump selected as the Republican candidate by less than 5% of the U.S. electorate. And so what, then, what tends to happen is um, the parties are then uh, held hostage in the following way, because if you think about Jim Jordan or, or Ocasio-Cortez, they go to Washington and either they compromise in ways that make it possible to govern, uh, in which case the people who, who selected them feel they've been betrayed, which is true, and so uh, they turn on them as uh, others have been turned on in the past, or they don't compromise, in which case you get gridlock and most other voters alienated because they see dysfunctional government and so on. And so either way, uh, there's a lot of dissatisfaction bred by uh, the system that we have created. When we look at California, where the largest political party is declined to state, how does that fit into this larger equation? So California's made some reforms that we've, we partly endorse and partly disagree with. So um, two, two in particular that are important. Um, one is you've gone to jungle primaries, which is, you know, uh, as people in California know, it means that the parties don't have independent partisan primaries. But, but we see that as a Band-Aid on a bad system because, yes, it, um, it tends to push the candidates more toward the middle, but by promoting intra-party competition, uh, you tend to get celebrity candidates and you tend to get candidates who promise to bring home the bacon to the constituency that get into those kind of uh, competitions for uh, which leads to pork barrel politics, which again turns voters off when in fact what we need to do is strengthen the parties. So jungle primaries weaken the parties uh, in, this, in a different way than the primaries elsewhere in the country uh, have done. Uh, we also like the fact that California has gone to independent commissions to draw districts, because in many states, um, the districts are drawn by the state legislature, and that, you know whoever dominates the state legislature then creates safe seats for themselves. And we've gone now to a world in which more than 90% of seats in Congress are safe seats, which then means the primaries are the only goal in town. So we like the idea of going to independent commissions, and California's blazing the way in that. Um, but unfortunately, the independent commissions are not drawing districts that are going to be competitive across the parties, which is what's really important. We think that there needs to be competition between the political parties over the programs that they would implement if elected so that they can then be held accountable uh, if they do it and it doesn't work or they say they're going to do it and they don't do it. Right now, voters don't know who to blame in Congress. The parties are so weak that even though they are highly partisan, they can't actually uh, implement programs that uh, they can then be judged by. One of the things that we see that feeds into this division today is this idea of single-issue voters. Talk about that and how yeah. it fits in to this whole idea of parties, which are, which are kind of blended, which are kind of, as you say, bundles of ideas. 
So that, that's a, a very good example of what we're talking about. So it sounds great, right? You know, voters should be able to decide on every single issue. And, uh, you know, we can have lots of direct democracy. But, but think about this. Um, if you ask American voters, would you like any tax cut, even a cut in the estate tax, which almost nobody pays, it's estates of more than $22 million, 70% of voters will say yes. But if you say to them, would you like us to get rid of the estate tax if it also meant getting rid of prescription drug benefits for seniors, then big majorities say no. So what's going on there? Essentially, what's going on is in the second example, people are discounting their preference for the tax cut with their preference for, for prescription drug benefits for seniors, and then they come out in a different place. That is what parties do. They bundle issues, and essentially what they have to do is discount everything they propose by everything else that they propose, and then put together a platform that they think most voters will go for. Um, so, in, you know, and this is a, this idea of, of voting issue by issue, we don't discount things by other things that we want. So just to give, you know, two dramatic examples, Proposition 13 in California limited um, property taxes to 1% of assessed value. Um, Two-thirds of the California voters said yes to that in 1978, but they weren't forced to confront what that would mean for California's education system or what it would mean for local government services and so on. Another example is Brexit. Um, how can it be, one might say, that most British voters vote for Brexit while majorities of both the political parties in Parliament that they have elected are strongly against Brexit? The reason is that the parties have bundled leaving the European Union with all the other things that they know are important to their constituents, and they know that those things will be adversely affected by leaving Europe, so they're strongly against it. So it's the same voters, but they're being asked a different question. And uh, if, if you let voters unbundle and vote issue by issue by issue, it's 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 a little like, you know, essentially a child just eating candy without thinking about the stomach ache that's coming later and the doctor's bills and so on. And so that's a very important um, role that parties play is to bundle issues and come up with platforms where everything we want is discounted by everything else we want because we can't have everything uh, and everything comes, you know, at a cost for other things. And there are opportunity costs for everything we do in life, just as we all know in our daily lives. And so essentially referendum politics and uh, ballot initiative politics is a license for us to be irresponsible in a sense of demanding things without uh, considering what they're going to cost in terms of other things that we're also going to demand later. Um, and, of course, as you know, Proposition 13 greatly undermined uh, the state politics uh, in, in a whole area, whole, whole areas, particularly education and local government services. It's interesting that, that Prop 13 was so many years ago, and yet the problem has gotten worse because one of the things <coughs> that this takes place in, one of the things that is the context for all that we've been talking about, 
is the reality today of a 24-7 news cycle and social media, Mm -hmm. which feeds into Mm -hmm. these single-issue ideas. And overlaying that is the idea that so much money is raised in the political system around these single issues. Yes. Well, so there are two important points there. One is that Proposition 13 really ushered in the anti-tax movement in the U.S., um, you know, which just gathered steam in succeeding decades. But it's a single issue. Again, if you look at, you know, this just harping on cutting taxes uh, is what's contributed to our $22 trillion deficit as we have now fought, uh, you know, the longest wars in American history by borrowing trillions and trillions of dollars in Afghanistan, in Iraq, uh, and uh, because it's it's uh, impossible for Republicans ever to agree to any tax increases, even when they want to spend money hand over fist, as they have done um, in these wars, and as, uh, you know, happened again in the 2017 uh, tax bill that uh, passed um, so, so this is exactly the kind of politics that's been generated. Um, so that that's you know a a really uh, important thing to to think about when you push single issues without thinking about what what it is that they're going to cost. There's certainly been lots of talk lately, and and last week, you know, Howard Schultz fed into that about the idea of independent candidates and third parties. One of the cases that you make in the book is that really two parties is the right number, that a binary choice is what's correct. Uh, Yes, we do think two parties is the right number because, uh, you know, people like to think the grass is on the other side, but much of our book deals with the pathologies of multi-party systems where, again, nobody knows who to hold accountable for what because coalition governments are put together after elections, and um, uh, they can then subsequently blame the other member of the coalition. If you have a largely independent person, they will not have the support in the legislature to enact what they run on. So if you see, if you look at Macron in France, he ran largely as an independent. He created a brand new party of his own, you know. And, but his his popularity started eroding within minutes of his election because he has absolutely no organized uh, political party that can implement his program. And you have French legislature ranging from, you know, Le Pen's far-right nationalists to the socialists. Um, and so there's going to have to be huge amounts of horse trading uh, in order to get anything implemented. So it's a good feature of the American system that it produces these the problems are so weak because the leaders cannot um, get the the back benches to support the representatives to support them because the representatives are beholden to outside interests. You mentioned money earlier. When people talk about money in American politics, you know everybody wrings their hands and says how terrible it is, and you know Citizens United and all the lobbyists and all the people with their agendas, but. What people don't focus on, which we do in our book, is why is there so much demand for money? Why do politicians need so much money? And the the answer to that is because every single representative is essentially campaigning for themselves. So they have to raise huge amounts of money in order to survive and to head off primary challenges and so on. 
uh, retail campaigning is much more expensive than wholesale campaigning. So if you look at a country like Britain, uh, where the parties are much stronger, even though they have their own problems, which we discuss, because uh, they've gone down the referendum path and so on, which was a mistake. But they're much stronger parties, and they have much shorter wholesale campaigns, so money is not a big issue in British politics in the way it is here. And the politicians hate our system. Not only do they have to spend all their time raising money, but then they're beholden to the people who give them the money. And we, everybody knows that, uh, including them. So, you know, they don't like it, but they're trapped in the system that we have created of such weak parties. Um, and that's what we really have to reverse. Um, and so we propose things like if the primary turnout is less than 75% of the general election turnout in the previous election, it should be discounted and the party in Congress should select the candidates because they have an interest in picking people who can both win in their districts and support a national program. For presidential candidates, you know, we used to have a system uh, in which the congressional parties picked the presidential candidates. Andrew Jackson didn't like that in 1824 when he lost to John Quincy Adams, so he waged the first populist assault on the system, which resulted in 1828 in um, the first national conventions, and that's how Jackson got the nomination. But the system he destroyed made the U.S. system function more like a parliamentary system because, of course, the parties in Congress would pick presidential candidates that they could work with and all be on the same team with. And that's what we need to get back to. Um, so, again, we would say if if the turnout in presidential primaries falls below some threshold, uh, then the parties in Congress should be picking the presidential candidates. Of course, this is the opposite direction from what people are saying now. Oh, they're all complaining. We should get rid of the Electoral College, and we should Hillary should have won because she got three million more votes. But strengthening the presidency just weakens the parties in Congress. It would make the U.S. more like Latin America, uh, where um, the systems are very unstable uh, because the legislature and the president have separate systems of authorization and legitimacy, um, and that's why you often get uh, the breakdown of democracy in Latin America. We should be weakening the presidency. Isn't that what we're seeing now, that is, as a net result of, of what's happening now, we have fascism or, or certainly des- a certain amount of despotism creeping into the system, as, as your colleague yep. uh, Timothy Snyder points out? That's exactly right. It's when Congress gives up power to the presidency, it's very difficult to get it back. It's not impossible. If you if you look at the 1860s after the Civil War, when when uh, Andrew Johnson pretty much you know was trying to subvert Reconstruction, uh, after the 1866 midterms, the Rep- the Republicans had big majorities in the House and the Senate, and they actually took back a lot of power from the prevented him from from firing um, uh, Secretary of War Stanson and Ulysses Grant, um, who Lincoln had appointed, Military Reconstruction Act over his uh, veto and insulated the military command from his interference. Um, And, of course, they eventually tried to impeach him. But that was a, a take back of congressional authority that had been ceded to the executive branch. 
And we've had desultory efforts at that with the War Powers Act, which are never implemented. But now you actually see President Trump's threats to use emergency powers to build a wall on the southern border. Uh, lots of discomfort in the Republican Party at this possibility. And I think we might be seeing the beginning of a move here to reclaim legislative authority from the ever, in, uh, you know, ever uh, um, voracious imperial presidency that we have uh, created, that would be a good thing because what America most needs is strong, strengthened parties in, in uh, Congress that can operate as teams and put programs in front of the voters that most voters care about. Uh, you know, everybody blames the voters. They say, oh, the voters are stupid and ignorant. They don't participate. But of course, when the parties are dominated by these fringe issues that most voters don't really care about and are not talking about the things that voters do care about, like, um, you know, retraining people who are going to lose their jobs seven times over their employment lifetime, uh, like uh, health insurance in some form that actually can pass, that's not going to be free Medicare for all, then voters would have more interest in listening to politicians and participating in the system. So the low turnout is, it's, you, you know, you shouldn't blame the voters. We, should, and we also shouldn't blame the politicians. They're just responding to the incentives in front of them. What we have to do is change the incentives. Politicians are not evil. You know, they're trying to do the right thing. It's just that, that they uh, face this impossible task. You know, you look at the Senate leadership and they won't, um, they won't uh, take on the extremes in the party because they'll face primary challenges. And so that's the real problem. One of the things that you talk about that comes from a healthy two-party system is an increased level of competence. Talk about that. If you if you think about again, if you think about a two party system, um, you know you're 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 designing the strategy for one party, and I'm designing the strategy for the other party. I have to worry that it you know it's winner take all politics, and therefore also loser lose all politics. So if I don't come up with a platform that most voters are going to want, you're going to win. I have to worry about. I can't cater to narrow interest groups. I have to try and, uh, you know, any voters that I leave on the table are voters that you are, you're going to have to, you're going to win. And we both know that. Um, so we have to come up with responsible platforms that are going to appeal to large numbers of people. And those are going to be moderate platforms. Everybody talks about the importance of compromise, but there's a big difference between moderation and compromise. Because if, if you know you're going to have to compromise later, people tend to take extreme positions, just like a store, you know, puts up their prices in order to then say they're having a sale. So everybody's playing games. Um, but what we advocate is really something more like um, what sometimes is called last best offer arbitration, um, where, uh, you know, if labor and management can't agree, um, each one must must put out a platform and a position, and the arbitrator has to pick one. So that causes them to moderate because they don't want the arbitrator to pick the other one. And so what it's going to mean is that 
parties are going to know they're going to be held accountable for the platforms that they adopt, uh, and therefore they're not going to pr- promise ridiculous things that they can't implement. They're going to promise things that they can competently do, because when they're held to account, they're not going to have somebody else to blame. They're actually be held accountable for the policies that they uh, institute. And so you're not going to have these, the Republicans in opposition voted 61 times to repeal Obamacare, but in government they couldn't do it because they knew that their, many of their voters actually wanted. So you have all this posturing in American politics and uh, people promising uh, ridiculous things that then when none of them happen, just further alienate voters. And then along comes a strong man and says, I, can, I alone can fix this, elect me. But of course, uh, jobs have gone offshore, and it's certainly not creating the jobs that are going to technology and computerization. Um, that's what a competent government would be doing right now, because that is the biggest single threat to the well-being of Americans going forward. And uh, we make it impossible for governments to act in a competent way. Looking at the big picture, what do you think is the largest single impediment to getting back to this strength of political parties? Well, there's no silver bullet, but the first impediment is to stop pushing in the wrong direction, stop weakening the parties further. Um, And then secondly, we think... Uh, we don't think you could get rid of primaries because you know, they've been around for 100 years. But what's changed um, is the, the proliferation of safe seats, which makes the primaries so much more important. So we think the country should be following California's lead with independent commissions drawing districts. But they should draw districts that look like America. Uh, they should draw districts that have both urban voters in them and rural voters in them so that people running for office have to think about the interests of both rural voters and urban voters when they put together their programs. We've got to get away from the, you know, the blue cities in red states where urban and rural are at war with each other. Um, uh, the reform we talked about uh, a few minutes ago, that when turnout is very low, the parties should be picking the candidates. And when turnout is very low in presidential primaries, the parties should be picking the presidential candidates. These are the sorts of things that would, at the margin, strengthen the parties and push in the right direction. None of what we propose requires constitutional amendments. Um, it's all within the realm of the feasible what we really have to do is conversation and get people to see that we're pushing in the wrong direction and we should start pushing in the right direction. Professor Ian Shapiro, he's the co-author of the book Responsible Parties, Saving Democracy from Itself. Ian, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you.